श्री गौरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए श्री गौर पुणि महामोत्सव गौर भक्तवृंद की गौर प्रेम आनंदे important uh, poetic uh, statements written about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Nityananda Prabhu by the venerable Vrindavandas Thakur. Sri Vrindavandas Thakur was, um, has been dubbed the Vyas of Chaitanya Leela. Vyas is, of course, the, uh, the uh, sage who's said to have compiled all of the Vedic wisdom, empowered by uh, the shakti of, of, of knowledge for such a kind of avesh or empowerment. He wrote the Bhagwat in the Himalayas next to the Saraswati, and the Bhagwat is all about the life of Krishna, life and the truth that underlies his uh, Existence and Vyas wrote the Chaitanya Bhagavad in, in Navadvip, where the uh, Saraswati is represented by the Jalangi at the confluence of the Ganges. And uh, there he wrote about the life of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is the uh, Sakshat Prajendranandan, Krishna himself appearing in uh, for a different purpose and therefore a different, uh, slightly different appearance. So the Vyas of Chaitanya Lila, he was, I believe, the nephew of, of Srivas Thakur, in whose home Chaitanya Mahaprabhu performed his famed nocturnal uh, kirtan, chanting the holy name. So a very important person, and uh, much uh, regard has been given to him by Krishnas Kaviraj, who followed him in also writing a description of the life and the uh, theology and philosophy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his famed Chaitanya Charitamrita. So both books are written in Bengali and they have a fair amount of Sanskrit in them as well where when making a particular point in the local vernacular of Bengal, Bengali, as was the case, they would cite a, a verse from the sacred texts which are written in, in Sanskrit to give support to what they're saying. So, the verses I want to discuss are written in Bengali, and they're in the beginning of his book as a way of offering respect to the presiding deities of Gaur and Nityananda before embarking upon the task of of writing about them, a transcendental kind of event in uh, in history of the history of the world. So, and the books uh, by saintly persons that are considered sacred and so forth. Oh, this is characteristic of, of them, that there'll be a, a namaskar verse, a verse offering respect to the presiding deity. So his deity is Nityananda Prabhu, but he can't speak about Nityananda Prabhu without speaking about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And the two go together. And we'll discuss more about that. So his verse is, is in... Um, Interestingly, written in a uh, uh, in Bengali, and he uses a particular um, in describing them. Both he uses the uh, how would you say the uh, the dual tense instead of the plural tense. 
to emphasize uh, the non-difference between Chaitanya and Nityananda. Uh, they have a kind of a, in many respects, there's, uh, they're, they're one. They're about the same thing. But we'll talk about that. Um, later today, if there's time, I want to speak then on the Mongol verse, the Namaskar verse of Chaitanya Charitamrita, written by Krishnas Kaviraj Goswami. We'll examine a little bit the differences there, and their emphases and sentiments and so forth. There are two great uh, devotees, one, Vrindavan Das, who has had a great affinity for Krishna's uh, cowherding pastimes, and Krishna's Kaviraj affinity for the um, romantic life of Sri Krishna, Radha and Krishna. So, a little bit different, room for difference that, uh, that fits within the parameters of what is the nature of uh, reality. So there's some difference within that then that uh, serves to ornament the truth. So, uh, some of you may know the verses, and uh, they go like this. Ajuno lambita bujo kanakavadato sankitanai kapitaro kamalayatakso vishpambaro dvijabaro yugodharmapalo vandejagatpriyakaro karunavutaro He says, Ajuno, Ajuno lambita bujo and he begins by describing the, the bodily characteristics of Chaitanya and Nityananda. And this is a very uh, extraordinary one, a little difficult to understand. Ajna Lambita Bhujo, he says, their arms extend down to their knees. And we find in the later book of Krishnadas, Kaviraj, when he's describing the uh, bodily characteristics of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he says that he's a Nyagroda Parimandala. This is a very abstract uh, term, um, but it's found throughout uh, in the literature, even in the Buddhist sects. Nyagroda Parimandala. Nyagroda means like a, like a banyan tree. It indicates, uh, well, the banyan tree, of course, grows up and then it's it's big on the top and its branches come back down and take roots, and one tree is, turns into a veritable forest itself. So it's a very uh, extraordinary tree, and Chaitanya and Nityananda are very extraordinary persons, he wants to say. Adhanolambita bhujo, hands extending down to their knees. Krishnadas has said that this is one of the symptoms of the Nyagroda Parimandala, or the Siddha Purusha. It's it's a it's in consideration of some ancient text, I believe, on physiognomy. Now, I know it kind of don't think of a Neanderthal man or something like that. Somehow the <laughs> long arms. It, it it also means something like this that Niagara Paramandala is kind of like a top heavy, but in a, in a way that's it means got something like that top heavy, but in a beautiful way, in a charming way in a compelling way. And his arms were long, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Nityananda Prabhu as well, as, as he's describing them, and they would be ext- often extended up and out like this, out of ecstasy in dancing, and that was invoked, arose the spirit to dance and from the, the chanting of the uh, holy name of Krishna. 
In another place in the Bhagavad Gita, it's mentioned Krishna Varnam Tisa Krishnam Sangopangastra Parshadam. Krishna Varnam Tisa Krishnam Sangopanga. Anga Upanga. Anga means, there are different ways to understand the word, but one of the ways is Anga means limb, like an arm. And Upanga means like extension of the arm. It could mean like ornaments on the arm. Suvarna Marnahemango. Varnangas Chandanagati. It is mentioned in in Mahabharata, that um, he was ornamented with um, sandal paste and and some like uh, armband, like, something like this, uh, put it in our terms. And so, the Bhagavad verse, Krishna Varnam Tisakrishnam Sangopangastra Parshnam. Astra means weapon. Astra, Anga, Upanga. So his weapons or his arms. I was just meeting with the Jehovah's Witnesses before coming down. They uh, they come and visit me regularly. First time they came that I met with them, they you know they give their paper, the Watchtower and the Wake, and uh, I I told them that the first time they came at all, oh, this is a very nice magazine. You know, my teacher Prabhupada in India many years ago, he was very uh, concerned about coming. To America, where his his Gurudev had wanted to spread the good news of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and uh, and in order to find out information about how the American public thought, or people in the Western world, you know, in India, uh, was hard to do so at that time. There wasn't uh, internet and television, satellite TV everywhere, and so forth, and radio. And so to get information about the Western world, if you don't have money, you know, to buy books is is expensive and so forth. So he would go to the tea shops and distribute his magazine back to Godhead, and then he would find uh, some of these tracks, the Watchtower and the Wake, and and how people they were writing. You know, they make these like seemingly contemporary articles that it's interesting to you get the last paragraph, and it all comes down to therefore you should do this kind of a thing. So anyway, I said that this is how he got where he got his initial understanding of how the Western people were were thinking. This is an interesting point about Prabhupada that I'd like to just go off on a tangent about for a moment. This is very, very interesting because he, he would, whatever he could find, like thrown away articles or, or whatnot in the tea shops, and he didn't have money to, to go and buy even the, even the newspaper, and how much he would have news of world events was questionable at that time as well. So this is what, he, what his, his reading material was, these kind of things, in an attempt, as I say, to, to find out what they were thinking so that he could give them Krishna consciousness. Normally we are taught not to read other things and to focus on our practice and not to get distracted and so forth. Uh, um, along these lines, Pujapat Chidamarsh was once on a train with Shripad Ban Maharaj, a godbrother of his, and and um, he told him, you know, if you, if you if you want to preach, you should read the newspaper. And Ban Maharaj took exception. What are you talking? Why should I read the newspaper? But later on, he appreciated it. He said that uh, I did that, and then I re- and I was able to preach in a more contemporary way to the people. So they used to say that Shridhar Maharaj, if he's reading the paper, he's like he's reading the Vedas. Don't think otherwise. They could go in there and not, you know, be distracted and so forth. So this was Prabhupada's the extent of his fixation with Guru Seva and uh, uh, adhering to, 
fulfilling the orders of his guru, which was very characteristic of him. He was he used to say to us that whenever we would praise him and, and he would defer to his guru, Dev, I simply followed his orders. That's all. If you want to characterize him, and there are many ways in which you could do that, this is this is one of the principal characteristics. Guru Nishta, we call it. Extreme uh, faith in Sri Guru. He used to say that I simply follow the orders of my guru. And what were the orders? The orders, once Prabhupada wrote to his Prabhupada that uh, if you could give me some service, you know, I'm not household, I'm not in the mission. And Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthadaka, before leaving the world, wrote back to him and said, I think it would be good as a suggestion for you to preach in English. So this is the order that Prabhupada, Prabhupada took the suggestion and made it like his life. And so, Guru Mukha Padma Bhakya Jite Te Kori Aike. It really personifies it. He didn't get a lot of words. Remember, Guru had said one, one word, one, if he says one thing to us, everything is found in there if we could take advantage of it. These, this is kind of an, an example of that. Extreme Guru Nishta. And so he would credit, and appropriately so, his successes to um, his faithful following. And, but you can't get away from it. Although he's trying to defer to his Guru, <laughs> obviously he has the credit for hearing and listening and paying attention. Uh, so, this is anyway how he was finding out about uh, about the Western world. This was his Ragmar greeting. He wasn't reading the Lila Grantas at the time of the Goswamis and so forth, but the Watchtower and the Wake <laughs> in an effort to uh, do what was necessary to fulfill, as he saw, the orders of his Gurudev to preach in English to people and share the good tidings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Nityananda Prabhu's teachings. So, anyway, the nice people. And they were talking to me, and this is their big day, apparently, annually, because they say that Christ died, and the death was the redemption for the world, and the resurrection, he didn't say to remember that day, but the death day, and you know, they have a whole thing. And nice people, and um, so they keep coming back, and they came today. They were speaking to me for about 20 minutes, and one of the things they mentioned is that Jehovah's Witnesses, that they, they, they say that all religions have copped out to the corporate uh, world and to politics and so forth and been compromised as a result of that. And so many, when they wanted to cite as evidence, so many wars have been fought and bloodshed over religion and so forth. It really doesn't have anything to do with religion because religion says that you should love your neighbor and so on and so forth. They're making some nice, nice points. And so they said, no Jehovah's Witnesses involved in any politics or any any war. And we have, I spent time in prison two years, one fellow told me, because I wouldn't wouldn't go into the draft, and my brother's in jail now over here, and the, still to this day, this is one of their strong positions, that um, they don't go to war. So uh, just a, a thought that came to my mind as I'm speaking about the Angas, Upangas of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, these were his weapons. So we agree with them <laughs> on this. These were his weapons, his arms. Astro Anga Upanga, raised up and in a big way, dancing and and chanting and enchanting uh, by as a result of that, through that, the masses. This is how he charmed the people. And many of them throughout uh, the subcontinent uh, of India. So they were long, parimandala, nagroda parimandala, long arms. So his arms was start is considered part of the upper torso, longer than the lower part 
of his torso. And in a way that is, was very um, uh, beautiful and great uh, devotees have tried to write about that. Uh, it is said that uh, the Nyagrodo Parimandala is four cubits. A cubit is the measure, the length from the end of your middle finger to your elbow. Most people are three and a half cubits. These are ancient means of ways of measuring. Either they didn't have as refined a means, well, they didn't have as refined of a means, or maybe it wasn't so important to be as exact. India is peculiar in its history and the way it went about recording its history. It's very different than the Western discipline. They recorded what they figured what they thought were important event. They wanted to record the feeling of the time more than in a more kind of, in a kind of a linear way, every detail and whatnot. So anyway, a loose form of measurement by modern standards. But then again, with regard to the topic, he is immeasurable. So four cupids, cubids, not cupids, but cubits. Four. He looked like Cupid, but uh, the divine Cupid. But four cubits. So you can see if you have four. Most people have three and a half. But not only four cubits tall, but four cubits wide, also from here to here, extended. So he was tall and um, beautiful. Brahma praise in Bhagavad, 14th chapter, 10th canto to Krishna, after Krishna uh, showed his Aishwarya to Brahma in Vrindavan in an extraordinary way by manifesting himself in the forms of all the cowherds and calves that had been stolen by Brahma. Some of you know the story. And one of the things he said to him amongst the many prayers was, what am I, a small being of... He used a different term. I forget the, the, the term. But it means uh, it's the measurement between your thumb and your uh, little finger. Or four fingers three times. And the average person is... 84 of those. You can try it. <laughs> and Mahaprabhu uh, was 108. So Brahma's saying the same thing, but I'm a small being of so many cubits, and you, are, who are you? You're immeasurable, but you're standing before me as if you're medium size. You're coming in human form, human-like. This is the idea. The avatar of Krishna, the descent of Krishna. I don't mean that he's avatar. He's avatari, the source of avatars, but he descends. Mahaprabhu descends also. In that sense, avatar is a, an example, as I've said before, of, the, of something beyond time and space appearing within our frame of reference, which is time and space. If we start to talk about beyond time and beyond space, it doesn't fit within the space between our ears very well. Time without beginning. If I say, well, we have a time, we're here for a time without beginning, you just want to put a beginning on it. We want to measure. There is a word, an important word in Sanskrit that seeks to sum up the nature of our predicament, materially speaking. It's uh, two syllables, maya, maya. It means that which is not. It's a, it's a, it's a misperception. Our whole pursuit in life is based on a misperception of what am I and, and so forth, particularly an identification with the body, and the uh, emotions that make up our personality and so forth as we know it. This is something that will not endure. 
whereas we do. So to think otherwise and give undue importance to something that's only one frame, if you will, in the motion picture of our life. You know, if you were to take just one frame out of all those frames on a roll of film that make up the movie and try to make everything out of that, make it an Academy Award winner, you wouldn't be successful. So we have to look at the bigger picture. This life is one frame. But this life is an important one because we have something, it's a human life, and so human life we can, we can reason, we can, this is when the universe kind of wakes up to the fact that it has a, it has a purpose. I was reading something, um, some scientific uh, people who had been asked whether they thought the universe had a purpose. And some of them said yes, some of them said no, some said maybe, and, and so forth. They're very, very educated, learned people. And I thought, well, I have a purpose. We have a purpose. And this purpose arises in, in really in, in human consciousness. And if you think that human consciousness and mind are a product of the universe, which they are, in, in, well, at least the mind is, in many respects, then the universe has a purpose which arises in human um, humankind. And so in human life, we can know. We can know... The universe knows that it exists. <laughs> it's aware of itself. And what we find also in its being aware of itself as that manifests in human consciousness, while it's aware of itself, it's still not aware of the extent to, to which it exists. So there's some fear to preserve it, to preserve the whole affair. And beyond that, even the the attempt to preserve is an indirect attempt to really what to fulfill the what is obvious the obvious purpose of the universe to be happy every human being wants to be happy that's what we want no matter how we try to we do it this is the end result everyone wants to be happy so my answer is that there there the universe has a purpose and it doesn't have a purpose it yes and no because if your purpose is just to be happy which of course by that i mean uh, we could be most happy, it's, it's seen, in, in love. Hmm? And love is not really, is beyond reason. It's a purposeless purpose, something like that. So human life is very special. We have a great opportunity. It's maybe one frame in a motion picture of our life. That's true. But it's an important frame. And uh, there's a great wealth to the human form of life that we can, as again, Again, we can think about the fact that, that we exist. The universe is, is conscious of it, uh, that it exists. We exist, and we exist for a purpose. And as we become aware of the fact that we exist, to the extent that we do, we find that animals are aware they, that they exist also. But in human life, we find a greater, to, to a greater measure we're aware that we exist. And the more we are aware that we exist, the more we seek a, a purposeful, meaningful existence. So the, the, in the human life, we find this pursuit of uninhibited, unencumbered joy. And this, of course, is the ultimate optimism of Vedanta. Vedanta is very pessimistic if you look at it from one side. It says, well, the world looked like a bowl of cherries, but it's the pits, actually. It's full of suffering, and everything is here today and gone tomorrow. So it starts to sound very pessimistic. I have a younger brother. And he came once and visited some uh, devotees at one 
uh, temple. I wasn't there. And, and um, he was talking to them, and they were speaking to them about Vedanta. And after it was over, they said, well, what do you, what do you think? And he said, it's as if I had painted a picture of my life, my future, in watercolors, and your speaking is throwing water on the picture, and it's all running, and it's, uh, what I had, uh, what I thought would be important that I should do with my, myself, it all dissolved upon hearing this. That could be kind of depressing in one sense. But then the other side of Vedanta, the full scope of Vedanta, that we call Bhakti Vedanta or Gaudiya Vedanta, that brings such optimism. You have to understand the problem in order to make a solution to it. So Vedanta is very concerned for analyzing the beast in such a way that we can understand the nature of it. Then we're in a good position to make a, make a solution. Then we know we're desperate. <laughs> we, we, what we want is unlimited happiness, and the amount we have is very, very little. Our hairs are not standing on end at every moment, thrilled with every aspect of life. Hmm? We cannot just contemplate one atom forever and, and, and get lost in that, in ecstasy. But such is possible if we were to uh, understand the thing uh, correctly. After all, he's everywhere in everything. This is the idea, one uh, basic idea about God. So it's a good opportunity, human life. And when it's met with sadhu sangha, good, good company, association of saintly people, then we really have all we need to realize our ideal, our our purpose, a purpose that just ekes out, as I say, of uh, of of the universe as it starts to manifest in uh, consciousness. I don't mean to say that consciousness is a product of matter. That's a scientific, of course, way of thinking about it. We have a different idea about that, but nonetheless, there is consciousness in the universe. It's not something uh, to ignore. You can't ignore anything unless you have some consciousness in the first place. So it's primary. This is, of course, our idea that matter in its various forms evolves out of consciousness rather than vice versa, consciousness evolving out of matter. The fossil, the stone, is an idea. Consciousness is primary. This is our idea. But consciousness and matter if you will, as much as I want to distinguish between the two, are what the world is made up of. That's what it is. And so the universe, in a sense, becomes aware of itself to the extent that consciousness manifests, and it manifests to a greater degree in human society than in other less developed forms of life. In fact, this is what makes it more developed. Consciousness, right? So when we take this human form of life and we combine it with sadhu sangha, good company, then we have at our disposal all that we need in order to realize, again, the obvious purpose of the world, which is to be joyful. And that, this is the verdict of the Vedanta also. Loka vatu lila kaivalyam. speaks about the world and says, well, and it's, it's manifest, it's generated out of joy. It has a purpose, but no purpose at the same time. It's, a, it's about... Um, love. This is what the Vedanta says. So, with a good balance of bhakti and Vedanta, and even in, it's interesting, even in the schools of Vedanta that don't make much of bhakti, in order to stay alive and vital in the world, they've had to factor in, in bhakti to have vitality and get, get the attention of the, of the people. This is an 
subtle perhaps, but important uh, point. Look at Buddhism. This isn't even Vedanta. This is a non-theistic tradition. What is the popular Buddhist tradition you'll find is is the one that speaks about well, let's take the Dalai Lama. He's the most prominent figure in the Buddhist world. He can draw the biggest crowd. He only has one subject to talk about that's, that really draws the crowd, and that is compassion, which is a form of love, obviously. It's a, um, a kind of a philosophical love. It's, it's a, a universal love, compassion. So by factoring in compassion into the Buddhist ideal, it becomes attractive. In the Dvaita Vedanta, they, they also it's it's a negative kind of theology, Dvaita Vedanta. But as much as they p- put a positive spin on it, it becomes attractive. A positive spin meaning uh, speaking about uh, compassion, about love, about such. So here's a school that's all about that. Gaudi Vedanta is all about love. It makes compassion look provincial. You see, think about it because compassion is universal in one sense. But it, nonetheless, it requires a person in need of compassion, right? Well, they're in need. But in enlightened life, then, who's ever enlightened has no need. So then the compassion evaporates. In a post-liberated condition, you can dispense with compassion. Do you understand? So it's, it's a kind of universal love. But the universe is, um, of course... It doesn't really go away. It comes and goes and comes and goes. In that way, you can say there's a perpetual type of compassion. But once one reaches the enlightenment, of course, they have the, the vow, the bodhisattva in Buddhism, to stay until everybody's, everybody's enlightened. So if, if that's the case, then fine. What will you do when they are? <laughs> if it was possible, when everyone's enlightened, then then what? So it's not a doctrine really, of compassion, of love, but a doctrine in which compassion has its place in the pursuance of the ideal. But at a certain point, it leaves off. So in Chaitanya Vaishnavism, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, it's a bit of a different idea because the explanation of love certainly speaks about love in a universal way, applying to all people in, 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 in the world and beyond, all species of life, but it also posits a a uh, transcendent form of love that has application beyond liberation and life. And life, after all, we want a spiritual life, so there must be some love because love is life. That would we live for love. So this should be studied. Most of you are somewhat familiar with these these topics. Those of you know, you should study this and see what Chaitanya Dev has given. If you're attracted to love, and we all are, and to joy and to happiness, which we all pursue, which comes... I mean, I say I make joy synonymous with love because we're really only happy when we're giving in any meaningful way. When we take, we may get some ephemeral, momentary pleasure, but it doesn't cause us to grow. It causes us to contract. When we take, our sense of self contracts and becomes smaller and smaller. And when we give, it grows. becomes bigger and bigger, and we feel ourselves more. We feel that we are. We have a capacity to give. To the extent that we, we do that thoughtfully and give where we can give the most, where we find the center, then we can find happiness. And love is about, you know, it's about giving. It's not about taking. And so 
in the beginning stages, love is synonymous with, with sacrifice, when we give because we, we know. So love, real love, is not ignorance. It's infused with, with knowledge and knowing. So in the beginning, we, we, we know what love is not. And so we want to move away from that, and we know what it is, that it, that it involves making a sacrifice. So we do it kind of dutifully or consciously, and, and eventually it comes spontaneously and naturally without thinking about it. It is not our second nature, but our first and only nature. And, of course, the theory in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and it's well-reasoned, is that, again, in order to do this, you have to find the perfect center. And when we say the word Krishna, what we're talking about is the perfect center. So you should study what all that's been said about this word, two syllables, Krishna, and why that in language, in, in sound, represents the center. It's a big topic. <laughs> uh, that uh, that cowherd. That it's 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 a huge topic. How it all comes to that. Very interesting. But at any rate, a very wonderful um, and um, deep idea of love and how, if we study the obvious, stated or unstated, stated by our actions, purpose of the world can be realized, can be fulfilled, and these waving of his arms like this, this Chaitanya, in singing and dancing in Nam Sankirtan, in his presence, caused the multitudes to take to this. And we have the opportunity through sadhusanga and human life to make a solution through such, through all of the problems of life, solution and more. Hmm? Solution, I can say, because we all look for love. So, he, these were his angas, these were his weapons, kind of love weapons, if you will. He convinced people by his uh, example, and his example was that he was he was a lover. And so he didn't uh, partake in the political uh, process like the Jehovah's Witness. And not only did he, did he uh, spread uh, his doctrine through uh, war and, and so forth, so I said, you made a great point also. We are not much interested in and such, and uh, for the most part. So, very extraordinary um, form. Nyagroda Parimandala. The top, bigger than the bottom, and big arms, long arms, extending out. The form of God. This is a difficult thing to talk about. We think of form in terms of its being a limitation, but we can just as well think of it in, as being a facilitation or facilitator. Uh, in other words, beauty, for example, is a very abstract concept. Until the artist puts it on the canvas, puts it to the to the pen, hmm, the writer, the beautiful thought, the poem, or the artist's drawing on the canvas, who, who can take advantage of it, who can appreciate it? So it facilitates. You know, you have a glass of water that's got a form, but it's facilitating for us to take advantage of the water in a way that without form would be difficult. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is a form. It is a form of love of God. How can you measure that? It's a form of love of God. He was just oozing in ecstasy of love of God and falling on the ground and getting up, falling on the... He's like Bhagavatam says, Muhuraho rasika bhuvi bhava alayam rasam nigamakalbatoro galitam palam shukumukadam ratadrabasam bitam pibata bhagavatam rasam alayam Drinking the nectar, the elixir of, of Srimad Bhagwat, 
the story of Krishna, drinking that, this was his heart, the Bhagavad, and falling on, the, falling in, in, mad in intoxication. And when he came awoke from his intoxication, drinking it again, drinking it again. Vedanta Sutra says, a spiritual mandate should be practiced again and again and again. This verse from Bhagavatam that seeks to support it on a high level. Nastaprayeshu abaddeshu nityam bhagavata seva. Not another one. On a lower level. On a high level. It means like a drinking and falling and getting up. And this is how he conducted himself. A form of love of God. I liken it to like a waterfall. A beautiful waterfall down in Costa Rica. We have many beautiful waterfalls. And so you stand in awe of that. Appreciating that. But... If someone wants to come and make a lake, then you can approach that water and drink from it and bathe in it and take advantage of it, make electricity from it and so forth, like we've done there to light up the jungle so we can see the form of the Lord at night in the temple <laughs> early in the morning and so forth. So so form is, is not uh, necessarily limiting. It's expanding and facilitating. And, and uh, nonetheless... It's difficult to speak about the form of God. It's immeasurable, but as Brahma said, appearing in medium size. You're immeasurable, but you're appearing in medium size. It means human-like. You're appearing in human society within time and space, but you're beyond time and space at the same time. Your appearance here is to take me beyond time and space. But the tendency of our material mind is to then try to reference that within time and space and take the the life out of the appearance of God. Do you understand? We live in a frame of reference where everything has to have a beginning, at least, and probably an end, too. I haven't thought about that too much. But a beginning. We live in time and space. That's our realm of experience. So when we talk about something beyond time and space, it's very abstract and it just gives you a headache. It's difficult. It doesn't fit, so to speak, in the space, as I said, between our ears. And this is a problem. This is, again, as I said, these, these two syllables, maya, it means to measure. It sums up the material world. It's, it's that which is not. You cannot measure the nature of the absolute, but we are trying to do that. This is the whole problem. We try to bring it in the fist, within the fist of our intellect, and in doing so, we make it less out of it than, than, than what it is. The descent of God, the sacred texts, and so forth. We should be, watch this tendency of our mind to measure everything. We want to, in other words, control it. If you can measure it, you can control it. But it's, it's not going to be subject to your mind. Not even your friend will agree to be subject to your mind, but to speak of the whole universe. This is the folly of that we live within our world of our mind and we, we expect that everybody else should be comfortable there as well. Or at least a few people. Uh, and it's not even comfortable for us. So it's an absurd proposal. We're not even happy there in the world of our mind. It's very, very small, very provincial. It's just a, a, a corner of the whole of, uh, of existence. So to come out from that, that's, of course, the basic idea of, of, of yoga, to come out from the world of the mind. And it seems a little intimidating because it appears that I will become small by doing so because while well, there's an appearance that I'm big, when I live in the world of my mind, at least with those who, who, who I can get to agree with me on something, then they think, yes, I, I feel big by that. 
But it's so small, <laughs> and so few people will agree. I mean, if they vote for Hillary or Obama, you know, still 50% will hate the other one. So it's so small. You're going to become big like this. But by giving, sacrificing, you can become big. That's how you come out from the world of the mind. You become small, but you become big in another way. Because you meet the one who's actually big. Suhridam sarvabhutanam natvamam shantamrichiti. Krishna says, Bhuktadam yagatapasam sarvalokamaheshvaram. I'm the enjoyer of everything. I'm the controller of everything. So nothing for me to control, nothing for me to own. Sounds pretty intimidating. But then he says, But if you agree with me, which is inevitable, then suhridam sarvabhutanam. I'm your friend. So you... You try to own and control everything, or this is one proposal, or you become the friend of the one who owns and controls everything. That's much easier. And what is your position then? You've become big. Oh, I know the one who owns and controls everything. <laughs> He's my friend. What will be left for you then? What necessity will you have? This is the idea. So maya. Maya means to, one way of translating means to measure. And it's the the tendency that we have to want to bring things within our grip. Vivek uh, Jai does. He wrote on our forum on the Internet about this, how, in one extent, how people uh, write, how people depict Krishna, for example, in different ways. In South India, he looks a little South Indian. In Manipur, he has higher cheeks. And uh, in Bengal, in one way, in the Braj in another way, and so forth. So how do we get a handle on this. How can we understand, I mean, does he look like this? Is it just this, this, the human element in imposing itself on transcendence and, and so forth? Well, yes and no. Um, we have our human instruments through which the senses we try to perceive and understand the nature of divinity and, and in the context of doing so in bhakti, they know, no doubt they become purified. But nonetheless, through them, we try to depict what what is our the artist for example his or her idea of how krishna looks and and it's kind of charming actually and appropriate to do it and i was alluding to this this morning i spoke about this this morning to some extent in relation to our own um, cultural sensibilities within within reason we wouldn't put a polo shirt on krishna but um somebody might disagree with me on that but uh, that's another talk but um this is, like I said this morning, Prabhupada named the deities in, in London, London Ishwar. So, it means that he allowed the people of London to think that Krishna is of ours, and this is what Braj is about. This is the, this is what Prem is about. The primary characteristic of Prem is what's called Mamata. That come, the love has come to a point where one thinks God is mine. God belongs to me. He's mine. He's one of us. He's ours. In Braj, they don't think. They think he's ours. He may be what other people think of him, but he actually he's ours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they see him in so many different ways. But and wh- when they say he's ours, it seems smaller, but it's bigger. As the Zen people say, small is big, something like that. Less is more, or something like that. So anyway, to come out from the world of the mind is is to be small, but in one sense, it's to be real. We are small. We are small, but we can be big in connection with our source hmm? by acknowledging that, by recognizing that. And that connection is through, as a heart affair, is through love. But it's well-reasoned. 
love. So to, so to try to, um, to try to represent in art or in, in, in literature and poetry the form of God in sculpture and so forth is, is difficult. God, the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, even more historically, you know, close to us than, say, the Krishna's appearance, which kind of disappears as far as history goes. And if you want to look at it historically, you think, well, well, I don't know if this really happened there. Whether historically, in the Western sense, is the way to go about looking at things, that is another discussion. But at least Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is historically traceable and so forth. And uh, But even still, the, the, the point is this, that the form of God is what? The form of God corresponds with the heart of the devotee. As they approach, then he's reciprocating accordingly. This is a chintya veda veda, that the devotee's heart and Bhagwan, they're one. They're one and different at the same time. There is no Krishna without Radha. No Brajendanandan Krishna. No Krishna in the full sense of the term without Radha. But probably put it like this, Krishna is not alone. It means he's Swarupananda and then his devotee is Swarup Shakti Ananda. And there's more Ananda in Swarup Shakti Ananda than in Swarupananda. Therefore Radha manifests from Swarupananda as Radha to taste the sweetness that he is. So the devotee and Bhagwan there's correspondence. That's why we say, if you want to find Krishna, look in the heart of a devotee. He says, I'm not in Vaikuntha, neither I'm in the hearts of the yogis, but where my devotees are chanting my name with love, that's where I'm present. He's in the heart of the devotee. This chanting comes actually from the heart, that is the idea. It goes in from the heart of a guru through the ear into our heart and has some effect. It causes us to move in a particular way. So, the heart of the devotee, that's where you can find Krishna more than anywhere else. This is the whole brudge. This is the idea. He's appearing in a particular way, for that matter, to Krishna, to his friends, and another way to his, to his parents, and another way to Radha and Gopis. Slightly different, nuanced, just to suit their love. And how many devotees are there? Unlimited. And so... <laughs> He appears in many different ways. Is he always in the heart? His leela is always going on where? We don't have to trace it out historically. It's always going on in the heart of some devotee. Some devotee somewhere is always thinking of some leela of Krishna. And he's present there. You take, for example, unless you go to Vrindavan today, and you, if you go to the Radha temple, then they bring out the footprint of Krishna. That's a footprint where the rock melted in his footprint. There, it's a big footprint. They bring it out and you pay your specs and give some flowers and so forth. And you might look at it and think, I guess it's a footprint. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you, you want to believe that. And the first time you see it, you certainly believe it. And because you went to Vrindavan and the sadhu took you there, your guru took you there or something like that. And, and so you're just totally influenced by his or her bhava and reasoning is just thrown out the window. And, but sometimes then after time, then maybe the guru departs and, and the reason of that demon of reasoning, you know, it's, it can become just like uh, take precedence and then we try to start to think about the thing in, in a way that's out of balance. Not that we shouldn't think about the thing and what it is. That's called Shastra Yukti, but Kabul Yukti, that is another thing. 
Hmm? Reasoning should be bridled, should be harnessed. It is not the sufficient guide for us for arriving at perfect happiness. You should be convinced about this. Therefore, you should read Bhagavad. Bhagavad says what? Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. It says, it is an invitation. Bhagavad invites, come, bring your reasoning, study me very carefully. It takes some reasoning, some intelligence to study the Bhagavad. It's a great text. 18,000 verses. Very complex theology and philosophy. Bring, bring it. Come on. Bring your intelligence. Study me very carefully. This is Nishta. In Nishta, one's going to use their intelligence and really reason it out. What's this all about? Bhagavad offers a challenge. So it doesn't tell us not to use our intelligence, not to think, but to think deeply and reason as to the defects of reasoning itself in terms of its being a comprehensive guide to lead us to our ideal, to our goal, to our purpose. What to speak of God, the soul itself is superior to reasoning. What does the Gita say? Indriyani praniyahur, indriya paramanaha. He goes through it. There are the sense objects, there are the senses. There is the mind, there is intelligence, and saha, and there is you, the self. And it's in the category of its own consciousness, different from matter, different from mind, which is a form of matter, different from intellect. So soul itself is, doesn't answer to intellect. And if we want it to answer, it will disappear. God will not show up in the court of reason. This is like they want to, <laughs> reason wants to bring him to court to prove if he exists. He says, I'm a no-show, you know. Arrest me, <laughs> if you can find me. <laughs> Arrest me, condemn me, d- d- deny me. That's all right, I'm not showing up. If I was to show up, that would, that would be the then admission of your position, that reason has, is, the, is the judge and jury over me. So when you think about it, reason about it, reason as best you can. How far will you go? How happy will you, will you become? Krishna says the same thing. Reason about the teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We're not afraid of that. And especially bring those who have reasoned about it and reason that it's not, it's not all it's said to be. Bring them back. <laughs> bring them back. Let them reason with somebody else. And Ruchi and Bhav, Asakti, has their own reasoning. First, reasoning will take some precedence to learn. You come to Nishta, then you get Ruchi. Then reasoning retires. Hmm? Not retires, but recedes to the background. The heart comes out. Then you Shastra Nipun, Shastra Yukti. We should reason to foster the argument in favor of revelation. That perfect knowing can only come by a perfect method, not by an imperfect method. There is no end to reasoning. However, you can reason about one thing, there can be another reasoning about that. We readily admit that. Therefore, we're saying reasoning has its limitations. And that may be, you may argue with that. That's all right. <laughs> but we agree with you. So you may say, we see you. Well, yes, we do. So reasoning is, has its limitation. It's not a perfect way of knowing. So what's the perfect way of knowing? If we are steeped in imperfection with imperfect means for knowing, including senses, mind, and intellect, arising out of ignorance of material attachment as they do, what is this body coming from? What's fueling this uh, bodily life, it's attachment. I mean, we think, who, do we, who are we? Our I is synonymous with our sense of my. You are your desires. You are your attachments, materially speaking. We define ourselves in terms of our attachments. I am so-and-so, therefore I ride in this, I own this car, that's who I am. 
I smoke this kind of cigarette. That's why I'm, you know, I'm the Marlboro man or wh whatever it is. Hmm? I wear this fashion because that's who, my attachments are who I am. I'm a mother because I'm attached to my daughter. Uh, husband because I'm attached to my wife. So this, our attachments, our desires, they form our identity. Our sense of I is derived from our sense of my. But the reality is nothing is mine. Does that mean I don't exist? <laughs> no. As I said earlier, nothing is yours means, well, it must be somebody's. We just said it's not yours. So whose is it? And when that person becomes mine, when I think that person is mine, we've come a long way, and we'll have an identity that corresponds with that. So reasoning, this is the reasoning of, of love and revelation, perfect means of knowing. It means if God wants us to know about God, then we can know. Otherwise not. If we're steeped in imperfection and our means of knowing are imperfect, as any rational person will admit, then we have to have a different means of knowing comprehensively, which is what we all want. Even those who say there is no perfect knowledge, they keep pursuing it to be perfectly happy because to act, your action has to be informed by some knowledge and, and you want to act in such a way that you become perfectly happy, so you want perfect knowledge. So you have to have a perfect means to get that. And this is the perfect means. You have to fold your hands. That's how you can do it. Acknowledge your limitation and acknowledge that such a thing as perfection exists and so let me petition it that it might reveal itself. This is as perfect a method as you can get. Every other attempt is an attempt to assert oneself that in and of myself, independent of the center, although I'm just a, a ray, a spark on the circumference, that I can re remain on the circumference and steal with away what's at the center. We have to come into the center. So with folded hands we approach. So Shastra Yukti means to use our reasoning to foster the, the argument in favor of revelation as a means of perfect knowing. And this is at the heart then of the nature of illusion, maya, our tendency to want to measure and bring things within our the, the fist of our mind, so to speak. So with regard to the form of God, we should bear this in mind and we should think that, well, let me find a devotee in whose heart, where a temple has been erected, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Radha Govinda are residing. That footprint, you look at it and you think, well, I guess maybe it's a footprint of Krishna. What is it? What it is, is a devotee looked there and said, there's the footprint. The devotee and Krishna, there's the correspondence that his or her love corresponds with the form of the Lord. So when they see a particular thing in nature and it speaks to them, oh, just see. And you have these like deities you can find in South India, self-manifest deity. It's in the Shringa deity, for example, or this of this avatar or that instead of stone. You kind of look and go, yeah, I guess. I guess it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Of course, Radha Raman is particularly charming and compelling in that regard, if you've seen him. Self-manifest deity, but some of them are rather abstract. But what they are is an angle of vision from the heart of a devotee. The devotee's bhava extends itself. Just like you have consciousness and you extend yourself beyond yourself to identify with things and, and think of them as yours and so forth. So this bhava is, is, is a condition of 
the consciousness, and it can extend itself. So it extends itself onto nature and sees it in a way that we don't. And that vision should be honored. Yes, this is the footprint of Krishna. He saw it. If I could only see the way he could see, or she could see, the devotee, this is the idea. So anyway, he has a... Vrindavan says, Ajuno Lombito Pucho. He wants to say, he has a very ex- wonderful uh, <coughs> form. His arms extend down to his knee. They're long. He's Nyagrodaparimondo. His upper side is larger and larger in so many ways, not just in length, it means, but in the magnanimity. These are his weapons, his arms waving and conquering the whole, the hearts of people. Ajuno Lombito Pucho. He says, and his complexion is, is golden. Their complexion. He's speaking about Gore and Nityananda. There's another point in this regard. You can, you can he- even hear in other places a description of Nityananda Prabhu complexion different. Some places golden, some places not. But uh, it's Vrindavan Dasis. This is more prominent, what you'll find. Description of Nityananda Prabhu is golden form also, just as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, golden in form. This is a significant because we find, from the point of view of revelation, it's significant because a significant body of rep- revelation is represented in the sacred texts. And there, in the, in the ancient sacred texts, we find mention of Bhagavan with, with golden form. Rukmavarna, for example, in Mundaku Upanishad, such so far back. And, and Bhagwat speaks also uh, in this language when it says, what, Pita Barnam, Shukla Rakta Tata Pita. Idanam Krishna Tamgataha. Gargacharya is speaking to Nanda Maharaj and in a golden form. And so, so where is the golden form? This is what the Chaitanyaites like to say. Here, here. There's a golden form of Bhagwan. Where, we don't find any other avatar described like this. There must be one. So they've taken all the Godis have taken all these verses that speak about that, as abstract as they may seem. And you say, well, that's saying anything about Chaitanya. But they've just taken this one point and they said, yeah, and here it is. They've identified him in this way. Golden form. Bhaktisantasitaku says, it also means that they were in the form of devotees. So he had some idea. Devotee. Golden. And course, corresponding with compassion. Karuna. So, Adhanu Lombito Pujo Kanakavadato. Of course, it's another lecture all into itself uh, with regard to the golden color of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and all the significance of that. But he goes on to say that Sankirtanai uh, Kapitaro Kamalaya Taksho. He says Kamalaya Taksho, the lotus eyes, another scripture of the physical characteristic. But Sankirtanai Kapitaro, he said they are the fathers of Sankirtan. Bhaktisiddhanta has made some emphasis on this point. He said what? They are the fathers of Sankirtan, and Vrindavanadas has used the dual form of the verb rather than the plural form, saying they are both fathers. They are the dual. They are both the fathers of Sankirtan. You understand me? They are both the fathers. Now, how can two men be the father of the same child? Hmm? So Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati he said an interesting thing. He said, Vrindavanadas has foreseen a condition this is his idea. He doesn't elaborate, but I'll elaborate. Vrindavan Das has seen the, the future, hmm? a condition, a time in the lineage of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu where it will be thought that hmm? that the lineage 
of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, his doctrine of love, comes by seminal succession. In other words, from parent to child, parent to child like this. Hmm? And by putting it in a dual form, he's saying, don't, don't, don't pay attention to that. Hmm? That is a mis- misrepresentation. Such a thing happened, actually. It's happening today also, in another way. If we take, understand this in a dynamic sense. In other words, for example, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu told Nityananda Prabhu to marry. Hmm? So he married. And of course, he married uh, not an ordinary person, but his, his own consort in, in, in Golok as, 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 as Balram. But uh, uh, they had a son, Virabhadra. And then, then Virabhadra had a family and so forth. And they were so there's a lineage. Recently, I was not recently a year ago. I was in Vrindavan, and a fellow came up to me, and I was near the Nityananda Bhatt, where Nityananda used to sit under the tree and chant when he was in Vrindavan. This uh, Brahmin man came up to me and said, "I am 19 generations Nityananda Bhamsa, 19 generations." Hmm? In other words, I'm in 19th generation from the family of Nityananda Prabhu, and I should be honored. You should know that about me. <laughs> Have you got a light? Just, yeah, yeah. You should take initiation from me. I'm in the family lineage, so this is this is the idea hmm? that I have. We have a we have a monopoly on this thing, and it, 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 we are the, the family members of Nityananda. Where you should honor us, and this is ex- extend itself in different ways that um, in different lineages. It's it's a problem. It's a problem, um, and it was a big problem. At the time of Bhaktivinoda Thakur, it's, it's graphic, you know, as that example is. You got to lie, it was that bad and worse. And so, just by being in the family, that doesn't make you. I mean, this is common sense for us spiritual seekers here. And we wouldn't um, buy into such a thing. But a lot of people uh, have, have done so. And, uh, and Bhaktisiddhanta was in a big struggle against these types of um, misrepresentations of uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, where a monopoly on the teaching was claimed um, for, uh, uh, by, for reasons of blood, for example, blood, blood relation. There may be other reasons, also institutional considerations and so forth. This thing is beyond all that. We, we should be, I mean, let's not, you know, it's childish to think otherwise. Hmm? Hmm? Nobody has a monopoly on this. Wherever it appears, say Guru Hoi says, I pay my head there. I, I bow my head there. Hmm? Wherever it appears. It means it can and should be expected to appear anywhere and everywhere. Wherever it is, if you know what it is, you can identify it, then you go there. You pay your respect there. This is dynamic spiritual life. This is what we were, this is what my Gurudev wanted us to understand. Hmm? So whether it be a family lineage, family consciousness in the name of God consciousness, or whether it be institutional consciousness in the name of God consciousness, we should not be cowered down by these these things in the name of loyalty and faith and chastity and and so forth. Hmm? Chase to the teaching. This is the teaching. Hmm? Understand the teaching. And when we, wherever we see it manifest in a prominent way, then we should pay our regard there. And it may come... Hmm? from unexpected quarters. It's quite possible. That's the whole teaching. I mean, Bhagavan's coming from the cowherds, from the jungle people. You would think, you know, 
if God was going to descend, it would be you know, very you know, regal royal family. Evam paramparapraptam, evam rajashi will be due. He even says something like that. You could expect, I, you know, I, I taught this to the kings and so forth. But he's coming in a, from a unexpected quarters. Hard to understand. Trace him out. Krishna. Hmm? So Sankirtanai Kapitoro, the dual fathers, Gaur Nityananda. Not just uh, because Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had no family. We can only go to Nityananda Prabhu's family to get connection with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. <laughs> Something like that. No. Sankirtanai Kapitoro, Kamalai Daksho, Vishvambaro. He says they are the uh, maintainers of the universe, Vishwambar. This is, of course, the name that was given to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in particular. His brother was named Vishvarup. It's the same concept. Uh, he's universal. And, uh, but Vishwambar in particular means like universal but nourishing to the universe. And the Krishnadas, in his explanation, says, of course, that this pertains to the fact that he was nourishing by what? Gaur Nityananda nourished the world. Not like Vishnu nourishes the world, but nourishing with prem, with love. This is actually what we're we're living for. We're living for this and this this kind of love. They're, and they are actually giving that prem. So, in a very special way, they maintained the universe. This is the food they they gave. And they are the best of the Brahmins, the Brahminical class of people, educated and. Uh, priestly class of people as they're thought of in India are said to be corrupt in Kali Yuga. So Bhaktisant Sarasri Thakur says, best of the Brahmins mean they took the position of acharyas. And what does acharya mean? It means one teaches by one's example. Yadad acharati achar. This is how Mahaprabhu taught, by his example. You know, very few words, no books, a few verses, eight verses in Shikshastakam by example. So that speaks louder than um, precept. This was his idea. If you want to spread this idea, you must spread it in your own heart. Then you become an example of that. It will be compelling. So they took the position of achar, of, uh, of acharja, of teaching, and teaching by example. I'm kind of hurrying through here now, if you don't mind, because it's been a little long, enough, but I want to finish this... Uh, and all the words in the verse. So, Dvijabharo, Yuga Dharma, Palu. They were the Pala, the protectors of the of the Dharma of the age, which is Namsan Kirtan. They they emphasize this in a way that if we if we pay attention to them, we what, what they said about it and how they exemplified it, we cannot go anywhere else. My Godbrother Chutananda Maharaj once wrote a book called Autobiography of a Jewish Yogi. I don't think it was published, but obviously he was trying to make inroads into the publishing world with, based on the title of, you know, of Yogananda, Autobiography of a Yogi. And, you know, any book about Jewish this or that, some Jewish person's going to buy it. <laughs> I guess that's what he thought. So, Autobiography of the Jewish Yogi. And um, somehow it came to Pujapad Sridhar Marsh uh, that uh, Chudananda, who had lived at the Chaitanya Saraswath Mount under the guidance of Sridhar Marsh, Prabhupada sent him there. He lived there for about six months. Prabhupada told him in writing that you'll be safe there, you'll be protected there. But to speak of what you can learn from him, I also learned things from him. So you'll be in good hands. So when uh, we were talking to Sridhar Marjan, and his name came up, and someone said he had written a book, an autobiography of a Jewish yogi, Sridhar Marsh mis- misheard, and he said, He's become a Jewish yogi? <laughs> a Chutananda? 
he has heard about Mahaprabhu here in Navadweep and so uh, how is it possible? He's just how could you possibly become a Jewish yogi after hearing of <laughs> So they are the protectors of the Yuga Dharma by their example. If you hear about it properly, you cannot go anywhere else. It's not possible. Yuga Dharma Palo Sankirtanaika Pitaro Kamalaya Taksho Vishwamburo Dijabaro Yuga Dharma Palo One day Jagat Priya Karo Karanabutaro One day Jagat Priya Karo Jagat Priya Karo means they were very, very kind to all people. They showed Jivadaya, Krishnanam Jivadaya, Sarva Dharma Sar, Bhaktivinoda said. They did two things. And this is the essence, he said, of all Dharma. Jivadaya Krishnanam. They took Krishnanam, they took to the chanting of Krishna's name, and Jivadaya. They showed kindness to all living beings. They practiced this. So you should practice this on a regular basis. Kindness to others. They did that. They felt for the people of the world. You know, Krishna wears a jewel on his chest called Kastuba, the Kastuba money. It represents all jivas. He wears it next to his heart. So, Yuga Dharma Palo, Vandey Jagat Priya Karo, Karu Nabotaro. This is his verse. They are the Karuna. Avatar. If you like the idea of compassion, they are the avatars of compassion. Karuna avatar, karuna. So, parama karuna pahundvijana nitai gaurachandra parama karuna pahundvijana nitai gaurachandra sabavutara Sarasiramani Kivala Nanda Kandha Sarasiramani Kivala Nanda Kandha So I'll stop there. Any question? There's another talk, so if you're just trying to keep me talking. I've talked for... Go ahead. She told me. I asked questions to keep you oh, talking. I, I didn't tell you. Okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, like, um, about Maya, like, how how we want to measure things, and then you said what we should keep studying the Bhagavatam so that we can, uh, come, you know, see that come to the end of reasoning. But sometimes it brings up more of those questions. And That's why there are two Bhagavatams. One is the book, and one is the person who personifies the Bhagavatam. So that when your your reasoning reacts to the Bhagavatam in a way as to for that you don't understand it, and he you talk you ask the question and you get clarity. You know, you know that it's Maya. Like for example, like I have a question about um, time, linear time. Like you know the um, incarnations, like Jai and Vijay, said how they took these three births, but there were like a million years between each one. So what did they do in all that time? Yeah, like. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> you see, this is the thing. This is not how, this is not what the Bhagavatam is trying to do. You misunderstand what the Bhagavatam is trying to do. It's not, like I said earlier, it's, it's not trying to represent historically in a way in which the Western mind thinks. 
with regard to significant events in human society. They're trying to detail significant events of spiritual consequence in human society, all of which are, as I say, outside of beyond time and, and space. It's a very different book. It's making certain theological and philosophical points that need to be understood. And when you try to make it all fit in another way, like, um, you know, you bring up a good example of that, or, you know, Harani Kasipu stood on his toes for 10,000 years. What was Prahlad doing in the meantime? <laughs> so when, you, when your mind asks those questions, then you should understand that you're, you're not understanding how the book was written and what it was trying to convey. I mean, to some extent you do, but you're, it's not what the author had in mind to make some kind of linear connection and all these points fit together in a way that just works in relation to human, your human experience. It's just, it's a book of philosophy. It's a book of theology. And it's a compelling, it's present, those points are presented in a compelling way to foster our own participation in that. And uh, he wasn't trying to, you know, connect all the dots. And it's poetry, the whole, you know, well, some of it's in prose and some of it's in poetry. I mean, you look at the fifth canto, and it's got all these explanations of the cosmos and so forth. And if you study the beginning of it, what does Sukadev say? Pariksit asks, can you tell me about the world? Because why? By understanding the world, which is one of the shaktis of Bhagawan, I know I'll develop more love for Bhagawan because the world is far out. He, he did all this. That's just part of it. So Sukadev said, well, I'll talk about it as much as I can, but it's really what it is, is a transformation of the gunas, which is unlimited in its mutations and uh, it's kind of magic is what it is. It's kind of a magic show. And um, I'll say what the Puranic scholars are saying at the time about it and I'll represent it like that but you should know, he prefaces it, is that what it is is the transformation of the gunas if you really want to understand it. Then he goes on and describes what the, what the historians and scientists and authors of the, the text of the time were, were thinking about the about the cosmos. So then you get caught up in the description and you miss the preface. You see, so you have to have to go to the heart of, of what it seeks to say, which is very rational. It's very reasonable. Its argument is very reasonable. Prabhupada would answer something like that, you think too much. Something like the fellow who said, you know, then you said, Vrindavan is like this big and there's this many cows, and on the marsh there's 900,000 cows, and... I measured it out, and I 900,000 cows couldn't fit there, probably. <laughs> probably said, you read too much. That's how he, he answered it. And that's a good answer, actually. It's not a reading exercise. Bhagavatam is not a reading exercise. It's a hard exercise. You have to read this book and look for, listen, look for the sign, what you need to hear in order to make progress in your spiritual life. That's how you have to read it. That's the, the qualification for the person for reading and understanding. You have to be interested in making spiritual... And is essence seeker. That kind of person can understand Bhagavatam. Another time I was with Prabhupada and in Vrindavan we were walking and wondered what he said. You know, Prabhupada, uh, we went to um, Barsana and then we were in Vrindavan and uh, it said that Krishna, you know, Radharani's coming from Barsana and she's coming to Seva Kunj at night and, you know, we had to take a bus and it was a long ride and you know, I don't know how they could, she could just come and go back on foot, you know, at night. And how's that possible? And Prabhupada said, ah, 
Vrindavan is like a lotus with many petals. At night it opens. <laughs> no, no at day it's open, at night it closes, like a lotus. And when it closes, then it just, all the points are connected for the Radha and Krishna's <laughs> affair. So this is, this is the kind of answers. So, all right, I think we'll stop there. We're going to have Abhishek for Gornitai. Suman Mahabrabhu ki jai, Katanamrabhu ki jai, Gorpuni Mahabrabhu ki jai, Gorpuni Mahabrabhu ki jai, Gorpuni Mahabrabhu ki jai,